It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Hello, you're listening to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. I'm joined by Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I'm joined by Jen Gallagher, elf maiden of Doriath, Luthien Tenuyo. I, I'm ex- I'm I'm very honored that you gave me Aragorn right off the bat. <laughs> of course, it's only fitting. And you you sprung this whole concept on me last minute, so I, I I gave I mean I gave you the best female character I could think of, the most classic. Yeah. Female character in the whole Legendarium. Super powerful. I'll take it. And I haven't read the Baron and Luthien tale in a while, so just just this exercise already has made me want to go back and and read that that story, go back into. And actually, I haven't read the new release of the Baron and Luthien tale. I've just read it in, in the Silmarillion. So. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a really wonderful tale. And I think it's essential reading if you really want to understand, you know, Aragorn's um, sort of backstory heritage and that kind of thing. Well, friends, everybody who's listening to us out there, all the millions of listeners I know we have right off the bat, <laughs> this... Thank you for joining us if you are joining us. And uh, this podcast, uh, on this podcast, we are going to be watching the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series week by week. We're going to be meeting here to talk about it, tearing it apart, uh, talking about how it lines up with the Legendarium, um, things that excite us, things that we like. And of course, the show hasn't launched yet. So in the weeks and months leading up to it, we're going to be speculating like crazy. We're going to be digging into old adaptations um, and everything that we're going to be talking about, we'll be going deep into Tolkien because that's what we love to do. But uh, it's all it's it's all going to be with an eye towards the upcoming series. Um, and everybody's everything is going to be viewed through that lens um, and through that framing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And Jen, I'm just so excited that you uh, wanted to do this. Yes, I, I can't wait. I mean, I've been anticipating this series for a long time. There's been very little released about it. And so um, just recently, we've gotten some more news, which we're going to talk about in depth. But uh, we're both big fans. And I want to get everybody pumped for the series. And I'm excited to rewatch a lot of uh, these movies that I haven't watched. Some of them I have not watched since childhood. So um, we are going to kick off with talking about what we know about the series so far. So I'm going to go through everything we know at this point and Michael jump in anytime with if I leave anything out. Um, and then Michael's going to talk about potential plot lines and different things that we might see from the series. So first off, there was a synopsis released this week that confirmed that the series will indeed take place during the second age of Middle-earth, which we we speculated about, but now that's totally confirmed. Um, and for reference, that's a time period that's about 3,000 years before the events of Lord of the Rings, and it spanned a total of 3,441 years. So we're going to talk about the synopsis in a little bit. We're actually going to break it down bit by bit. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue with what we know. So in November 2017, Amazon Studios secured the rights to make a five-season production. So there's definitely potential for spinoffs as well. 
the rights alone cost 250 million big ones. Cha-ching! Cha-ching, indeed. And at this time, there's debate over what exactly those rights entail. We, we don't know for sure, actually, what those rights entail. Um, so we do know that the, anything in the Lord of the Rings is up for grabs, including, you know, all the appendices. That's all fair game. Um, but we don't know exactly what's in that contract. So that's really interesting. I, this is the thing that I was really excited to hear from you about because um, it was my understanding there had been rumors swirling that the the rights were basically parallel to what Peter Jackson had acquired for Lord of the Rings, and it was so it's just everything in the Lord of the Rings and not anything more. But I I didn't think that we had any confirmation, and it sounds like we still don't know exactly what the scope we of the We don't know exactly. Is. And in addition, I mean, this is there's an article that I read on the OneRing.net that talks a lot about. It makes no sense that they would buy only the rights to the Lord of the Rings and not the Silmarillion or Unfinished Tales, for example, because those are the works that deal with the second age of Middle-earth. So why would you buy the rights to works that deal with the third age if you're making an entire series off of the second age? It just doesn't add up. So, you know, I think it remains to be seen. Um, my suspicion is that they definitely have access to to um, the Akalabeth from the Silmarillion, which is all about um, Numenor and uh, the rise and fall. And so, yeah, more more to be um, more to come on that front. So back to what we know. We know there's going to be 20 episodes per season. Um, Amazon will spend one billion to cover the production costs for the series, making Lord <laughs> of the Rings the most expensive show in television history. So the stakes are high, folks. It's well deserved. I mean, if any if any subject matter is going to get a billion dollars devoted to it uh, into a series, it should be Tolkien. Definitely, I mean, definitely. I'm glad they're investing in in the series. So we know it's being filmed in New Zealand, which is uh, fantastic. And obviously it worked so well for Lord of the Rings that uh, I'm glad they're keeping it there. I think it's really well suited um, to this story. We know that the show's main developers and executive producers are a duo named J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, who are most well known for having worked on the script for Star Trek Beyond, although they really have very few actual credits to their name, um, which has concerned some fans to say the least. They have, however, reportedly been collaborating for on scripts for two decades, and they've assembled a really amazing creative team that includes writers such as uh, Lindsay Weber, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Bruce Richmond, who worked on Game of Thrones, Gene Kelly, Boardwalk Empire, Sharon Tal, uh, Yagudo, Yagudo, I didn't say that right, writer, executive producer Jennifer Hutchinson, who did Breaking Bad, writer, executive producer Jason Cahill. Yeah, of The Sopranos, etc., etc. Um, Brian Cogman, who did Game of Thrones, Stephanie Folsom, Ron Ames, Helen Shang, and writing consultant Glenys Mullins. Um, star-studded cast. Star-studded of, of creative <laughs> team. And additionally, they have a fantastic costume designer, Kate Hawley. They have um, uh, an award-winning production designer, Rick Henricks. And uh, Jason Smith will be the visual effects supervisor. And this was the part that a lot of people were encouraged by, which is that they have Tolkien scholar Tom Shippey, who is serving as a consultant. Although, um, as of April 2020, I just read that he's no longer working on the project. 
Um, and this and the internet exploded. The internet definitely. <laughs> people were were freaked out because he is one of the leading scholars on the works of Tolkien, and he would definitely ensure that there was fidelity to the original content. Um, and so people are nervous that he's no longer involved. We don't know why. If his contract just expired, if he walked away. Who knows? Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of speculation that he was fired. I mean, that was that was how things were 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 talked about, you know, on Reddit. Like, you know, I mean, this isn't you know real news, but on Reddit, you know, the the some of the folks who are watching this really closely were freaked out. They're like, he's been fired. That means Amazon's going in a direction that Tom Shippey wouldn't approve of, and therefore we wouldn't approve of. And in conjunction with the relatively unknown showrunners, I mean, people were really worried that this is just going to be a total dumpster fire because it's going to be bad. And with Tom Shippey getting the boot, this is just a sign of bad things to come. And people were freaking out. I think that was really unwarranted. Like you said, we don't know why he left. It could have just been that he was consulting on the early stages and that his role was just done. That's what he had signed on to do and that he was no longer needed during the actual filming process, right? Exactly, Um, exactly. And also, I would add just... You know, so to keep everybody calm, they that the I did read that the Tolkien estate has veto power, which means if there's something that they I don't know where they were for the Hobbit films. I'm just gonna throw that in there <laughs> where their veto power was for those films. But um, I that that encourages me at least. I know that they will want it to at least reflect uh, some of the original and keep a lot of the integrity of the original. Um, I know they're very invested in that. So all is not lost. And let's just pause for a second. Uh, and let's just really ruminate on how amazing that fact is that Amazon paid $250 million to license the rights and then is budgeting, you know, a billion dollars total for this show. And yet they are willing to give away some veto power to the original license holders. I mean, that is really amazing um, that they would put put up that much money and not require total creative control because I mean, the Tolkien state, if they were to exercise that authority in a troublesome way could make production really difficult for Amazon. And that just shows that Amazon was willing to agree to that. I think shows that they are going to be towing the line that the Tolkien estate draws for them. I think that's everybody's hope is that they treat this, treat this body of work with respect and you know, bring a lot of the original story and the original feel into this project. That's what we're all hoping for. Uh, at least what I'm hoping for. Um, okay. And they also, I will mention that they also have illustrator concept artist John Howe, who, as we know, did beautiful work for The Lord of the Rings. So another person who was involved with the original series, the only person, Peter Jackson is not involved, which is fine with me. Um But yeah, so that's what we know about the production. I'm going to dig a little bit into the cast. I'm I'm not going to talk about all the casts at this point, the whole cast, because you can, it's pretty extensive at this point, and you can read about it um, on theonering.net. But I'm going to talk about... I think that would be a fun thing to go into more depth on at some other point, like really look at the cast and some of their their past works and really dig deep into the speculation. That that would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, what I can say is the cast is really diverse, um, and a lot of the actors are unknown, which I think is great. I think it's so exciting that they're going to pluck somebody from obscurity, these people, and they're going to be in this huge franchise. Um, I think that's cool. And they also used um, local actors, a lot of local actors from New Zealand. 
And yeah. a lot of them only had like plays to their name in their credits. They don't have any major work. So that to me, that's exciting. I think um, we've seen people be plucked out of obscurity and succeed. We saw it in Game of Thrones, you know, recently. Uh, so that's exciting. But I'm going to talk about a few of the yeah, I, I am 100% on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you there because uh, I, there were some people online, you see some discussions about, you know, being concerned not only with the relative um, uh, lack of experience among the showrunners, but also that there are no big names attached to this product, that that might signal a weakness in the show or the quality of the acting. Um, I totally disagree. I actually think to do a show like this, where you're going to have a large world, a large ensemble cast, you can't have a Brad Pitt um, being at the center of it. Because when you have one big name star or even two big name stars, the show starts to sort of warp itself around that person. And that person becomes a central, too central to a story that cannot center around one person. And just look at Game of Thrones. Like you said, uh, that is a show that had an absolute ensemble cast of relative nobodies. At least they were nobodies at the start. Um, they did a great job. They became somebodies through the show. And I think that's what we're going to see here. I think that's how it has to work. you know. And so I'm glad that they haven't you know spoiled that there's a... Although there, I'll tell you, I don't know if you've read this, but there is some speculation that Russell Crowe is attached. Whoa, I did not. Show, you know, a certain, certain gladiator. Whoa, I didn't read all, that. All I don't know how her, that slips you know, through my fingers, my knowledge Google fingers. <laughs> Interesting. That's juicy. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the cast that we do know about, um, you can recognize some of these names. There's an actress named Markella Cavanaugh. Uh, she's from Picnic at Hanging Rock from HBO. She's going to play a character named Tyra, who there's no Tyra in the book. So, you know, this might be somebody that Tolkien did write about, but under a different name. We're not sure. Um, Morfeed Clark of His Dark Materials is going to play a young Galadriel. So we will meet Galadriel in this series. Yay! Um, which I'm excited about. We're also going to meet Elrond. And is that confirmed? Is that... That's confirmed. Someone percent confirms that she is the young Galadriel. I, you know, I've seen it reported extensively that that's the case, but is it confirmed? Yes, that's confirmed. I believe it's confirmed. Um, I will fact check myself and maybe, you know, at the beginning of the next episode, we may have a small fact check if we get new information or something like that. So, but as far as I know, it is confirmed that she is a young Galadriel. So, Game of Thrones alum, I'll talk about a couple Game of Thrones alum that I recognized instantly. Joseph Maule, who portrays Benjamin Stark in that series, um, he's going to play a leading role as a villain named Orin. So, again, there's no Orin from the books, strictly speaking, but Orin, who knows? Orin could be Sauron. It could be, you know, the, the leader of Numenor. We're not really sure yet. Um... And another man named Robert Arameo will portray a lead character named Beldor, who is a hero figure um, in the series. And he's best known for playing Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. So we've got two Game of Thrones alum. Uh, yeah, and another, um, another exciting casting announcement was Peter Mullen, who you might recognize from Ozark or Braveheart. Harry Potter, Westworld. He might be actually one of the more um, well-known actors that's going to be in the series. He's pretty much the only actor that I that I immediately recognized um, because I was such a fan of Ozark and Westworld, and he was great in both of those shows. I mean, really a powerful actor. Um, so I'm excited to see what he does 
with his character, whoever it is. Um, and the fun thing about Lord of the Rings is he could be, you know, you look at him, you start immediately speculating, uh, you know, is he uh, the father of uh, a Numenorean king or something like that is what immediately comes to mind. But he could be uh, any kind of race. He could be a dwarf, you know. Um, but I'm excited to see what he does with his character because he is a great actor. Yeah, he's he's phenomenal. And like you said, I'm really glad they don't have someone huge, you know, who's going to come in and just... I think it messes with the suspension of belief and you start thinking about the actor and their previous work, at least I do. And so, yeah, I'm really excited that we can just fully invest in these characters as themselves on screen. I think that's really exciting. Um, so let's talk about the director. The director of the pilot episodes we know for sure is a man named J.A. Bayona who directed Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Um, he definitely did the first two pilot episodes. Those have wrapped and he has left New Zealand. He posted this picture on Instagram on December 22nd and it is captioned, this is my last photo in New Zealand. I have no words to thank this extraordinary land and its beautiful people for taking me in this last year and a half, etc., etc. So we know for sure that he was in New Zealand. They wrapped the pilot episodes. He left. Um, yeah, so I I actually enjoyed Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I didn't, I haven't watched a Monster Calls, which is his other uh, work or any of his other works. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see. I think it's exciting that he's a, a Spanish director, and um, I do think it's interesting that they're doing different directors for the rest of the series. We know that the series will be twenty episodes long. Um, so we'll see. I hope it's coherent, you know, given that there'll be all these different directors coming in. Right. Yeah. I don't really know how it works for shows like that. I have trouble conceptualizing the different roles of a showrunner and a director. I, I, I have always historically imagined the director to be occupying sort of the role of a showrunner, basically the person who's in control of the whole thing. And obviously for these large productions, those are two separate roles. And the director is, I think, um, got a more narrow focus specific to the episode, whereas a showrunner has a much larger job. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I'm i not as excited about um, Mr. Bayona. Not that I, I think he's a bad director. It's just I've seen Fallen Kingdom. I didn't love it. But the one thing that it does say that does make me hopeful is, I mean, Fallen Kingdom, he took an existing franchise, Jurassic Park, that had you know, a very specific way of dealing with the subject matter. Most of the films followed a certain type of pattern. There was a certain type of genre and fallen kingdom. He shook it up. He shook it up a little bit. I, I think he took a little bit of a different approach. Um, and, uh, I appreciated that. So I, I think that he could be a little bit of a risk taker. Um, you know, and I think you have to have that sort of attitude to be able to take on a project this large. Yeah, it's a tall order for sure. And um, I think that if you've got, like you said, these separate roles who are the, the producers and the showrunners and they're in, ensuring continuity and they're going to, you know, make sure everything's looking good and this is what the feel needs to be like, um, perhaps a director is not going to be all that consequential after all if you've got all these other cooks in the kitchen making sure it has the right feel and um, that it turns out a certain way. So I'm going to quickly, because I want to get to um, what we might see in the series, I'm going to quickly go over some controversies. Actually, I'm only going to do one because the other controversy, I don't even want to give it airtime. But one controversy that pretty much blew up the internet was um, 
we can confirm that Amazon Studios hired uh, Jennifer Ward Leyland, who is a well-known New Zealand intimacy coordinator for the Lord of the Rings production. <laughs> In addition, there was a call for background actors comfortable with nudity. So, <laughs> Michael Rowland, your thoughts? Lord of the Rings, Gigolo edition. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, sexy time. This is one of, this is an article <laughs> from theonering.net. Was so good. It was there, so there. There is nothing they more they could have done to generate furious interest in the series than to leak this piece of information without any context and without explaining what it's for because people. <laughs> I mean, freaked out, understandably so, because yeah. sex and Lord of the Rings? Like, no, it doesn't you know. mix. I mean, I think it's under, this reaction is understandable, and I think overwhelmingly people are, people are nervous, because what do we want from the series? What do we ultimately want? We want this idea of verisimilitude. Like, does it preserve the feeling of the original? You know, is it going to have the same feeling? Is it, is it going to be true to what Tolkien wanted. I think it's antithetical to what he intended to have, you know, a remake of... People are really scared that it's going to be Game of Thrones too, You know, just mm-hmm. a lot of gratuitous sex and all that. And and Tolkien himself was pretty averse to having this kind of thing, you know, in his works. He wanted to create high art, quote-unquote. So... Yeah, he's quoted as saying that, you know, he his stories were purged of the gross. Purged of the gross, um, exactly. And right. I think, you know, they could probably get away with, a like, a tasteful level of... If, if they're depicting, for example, people have speculated, oh, well, this is going to pertain to the fall of Numenor, which was this, you know, Atlantis-like right. nation, and they're going to show the corruption of Numenor, so there's going to be, you know, some of that sex nudity... Maybe some orgies in there. Who knows? That's what people right, are, right. are guessing, speculating. So I think they could get away with a little bit of that. A lot. I think you're going to lose some fans. I think you're going to upset people. Um, and, you know, a lot of people want to watch this with their kids or their young teens. So I think it's understandable to some degree that, like, well, now you've lost, you know, a certain audience because it's it's not what we thought it would be. It's very R-rated. Yeah, so this is why I'm not too worried about this, uh, and we're definitely going to be talking more about this, I think, in future episodes because it is such a, a big issue. But I'm not so worried about this intimacy coordinator one because we don't really, I mean, an intimacy coordinator doesn't necessarily telegraph that there are going to be sex scenes. It could be that there is nudity on set, non-sexual nudity, for example. Um, you know, the, you know. Someone has to be nude in a scene and they're not going to, you know, film a lot of nudity, but, you know, the person has to be nude for the scene because their butt's going to be shown or whatever. There are situations where there's non-sexual nudity. It could be that. Um, And it could also be, as you said, I mean, we are talking about the fall of Numenor. This is a Babylon type of story. Um, There could be some stuff going on in the background there that that does it here and is very much a part of what Tolkien wrote. Um, And so you can have fidelity to his story that that... he talked about, albeit in sketches um, in the Calabeth, but um, we can have fidelity to what he wrote and still have scenes that have some nudity for some reason or another. Um, so I, right now I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not terribly worried about it. We don't know exactly what it means. We, you know, um, I understand why people are a little worried, especially in conjunction with um, Jeff Bezos reportedly saying, 
that he wants this to be a Game of Thrones. Of course, what does he mean by that? Did he mean stylistically Game of Thrones, or did he mean he wants a massive show to fill the void left by Game of Thrones in the fantasy world space? I think it's more likely the latter, um, that he's not going to piss off this built-in fan base um, by you know, perverting, maybe that's not the right word, but subverting the text, uh, Tolkien's text, to make it fit the the George R. R. Martin mold. So I, I'm not terribly worried about it. I understand why people are concerned um, because we are all very passionate about the um, the tone of the books and ensuring that the tone of the show fits it. Um, but uh, it was a really, I ended up saying a lot, way more about this than, than I intended to, but it is a very interesting issue and, and um, one that we should keep our ear to the ground about going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I'm sure more will be more shall be revealed, Tavalon Tondra. Um, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Do we want to dig into the synopsis at this juncture? Yeah, let's let's do it. it okay. Yeah. I, so we we know, um, as you pointed out, we know it's in the Second Age now. Um, so let's just run through the timeline of events, especially a lot of the readers, even the readers of the Lord of the Rings books, and certainly viewers of the of the Peter Jackson trilogy are not going to be familiar with the events of the second age. So let's talk about it. And there are a lot of events, as you said, it's 3,441 years long. Um, So let's just run through the timeline. Um, I I think to really understand the second age, we have to start by explaining how the first age ended. Um, So let's do the central conflict of the first age was between Morgoth on the one hand and the elves of middle earth and the Adain. And Adain refers to the three houses of men loyal to the elves in the first age. Um, on the other hand, so Morgoth and the elves and the Adain are battling it out. And that, that tale is told more fully in the Silmarillion. Um, but in short, in, in the final hour, when it seemed that the elves and the Adain had been utterly defeated by Morgoth, uh, Arendelle the Mariner, father of Elrond, sailed to Valinor and entreated the Valar for their aid in the struggle against Morgoth. And the Valar answered. They answered the call. They came to Middle-earth with a mighty host and in this final battle called the War of Wrath, which lasted 40 years, they ultimately defeated Morgoth and they cast him into the void. Um, and the War of Wrath was a terribly destructive war. You know, it reshaped the earth. Um, now, Sauron, during this War of Wrath and, and during the First Age, he was Morgoth's number two. He was very powerful. You know, he, he was his right-hand man. Um, and at the end of the War of the Wrath, War of Wrath, when Morgoth was defeated, he was commanded to go back to Valinor for judgment. And the Silmarillion talks about, he, he, you know, he apologized, he was contrite, and that he may have actually believed it, that he was afraid of the Valar, he, that the defeat of Morgoth shook his faith in in his the beliefs that he had clung to. You know, he was Morgoth's follower, and the defeat, the utter defeat of Morgoth, shook him. Um, and so it talks about, well, maybe he really did believe that, uh, that he should be apologizing that, that he had taken a wrong turn, but the Valar ordered him back to Valinor to be judged. And Sauron wasn't having that. So he fled, he took off, he went into the East of Middle Earth and hid out. And, you know, the Valar, I guess, forgot about him and didn't bother to like track him down and drag him back by the ear. They just like, all right, where'd Sauron go? He was here a second ago. Uh, I got a lunch appointment. So then they went back to (laughs) Valinor and just, you know, uh, left Sauron in Middle Earth. You know, that's an oversight that's going to haunt the next 6,000 years. So I blame, you know, side note, I blame the, the Valar 
for everything that happens after. They should have been a little bit more diligent about bringing Sauron back. Anyway, also at the end of the War of Wrath, the Valar invited the remaining Eldar, all the elves, back to Valinor. Uh, and there were a lot of elves who had refused the first invitation to, to Valinor. There were a bunch of the Noldor in exile uh, who had left Valinor, uh, uh, Valinor, and the Valar invited them all back. And a lot of them went. So a lot of the elves in Middle-earth left Middle-earth to go back to, to Valinor. Um, there were a number of men, some houses of men, who fought on the side of the Eldar, Eldar as we talked about. Um, a lot of the men, side note, fought for Morgoth. And we can talk more about that later. But uh, when the men first awoke, in the darkness, uh, Morgoth found them first. And so many of them lived in darkness and became slaves to Morgoth or servants of Morgoth. And so there were actually much fewer men that fought against Morgoth. And so these three houses of men who fought against Morgoth were rewarded for their bravery and their loyalty with a island paradise called Numenor. And the Valar, you know, created this island they raised it up out of the ocean um, and for 30 years they they created Numenor and so 30 years later these men were given a signal uh, you know a star in the sky that led them to Numenor and they they boarded their ships and, and went over to Numenor so the first age ends in victory but as a result of this victory most of the elves and the good men that won that victory leave Middle Earth so and the Valar, they also left Middle-earth. They, they came, they saw, they conquered, and then they took off. Um, and really with no intent ever to return. And the War of Wrath had also wrought a lot of devastation on Middle-earth. So at the start of the Second Age, although there, it is a time of peace, Middle-earth is a wild place. All of Morgoth's servants and followers are still in Middle-earth. And all of the elves and men that had defeated them and who were, you know, the good guys, they're gone. So it really is sort of a medieval, dangerous, wild Middle-earth that we see at the start of the Second Age, even though it is a time of peace. Um, but we do have some elves that stay behind. We have Gilgalad. We have Galadriel stays behind. She refuses the call. Actually, I think there's some textual support that, she, that shows that she was not invited back. She was not allowed to go back to Valinor. Um, so we do have some, some high kings, um, a lot of the, the, the big-name elves that we are familiar with are still in, in Middle-earth, but um, a lot of the good guys have left. So now we get to the Second Age. And so the first 500 years are peaceful. Uh, Elros, Elrond's brother, rules in Numenor, and the Numenorians grow in wisdom and stature. They're trading with the elves. Um, the Grey Havens, Linden, the, the, um, is established, and that's, you know, cured on the shipwright. Uh, and the dwarves are thriving in Moria. So these are good times. For the next 500 years after that, uh, from 500 to 1,000, Sauron begins to stir again in Middle-earth. So we don't know exactly what he's doing, but the timeline in the appendices to the Lord of the Rings say he's stirring. All right. I don't know what stirring means. Maybe he's cooking something, but... Stirring up travel. That's, well, that's the only yeah, it's the only kind of cocktail he knows how to make. Um, and around this time, so between 500 and 1,000, the Numenorans start exploring Middle-earth. And the Numenorians are great sailors. They're mariners and they're explorers. And they're not allowed to go west to Valar. There's a ban on that because it's the immortal lands. So they explore everything else, Middle-earth, north, south, uh, east, and they're explorers. And so we are, if that is depicted, that could be a really fun thing to show. I mean, we're going to see a lot of uh, seafaring Numenorians. And they're visiting all the different, the various peoples in Middle-earth. 
the kingdom of Ir region, which is uh, Celebrimbor's realm, is established, and a vibrant trading relationship between the elves and the dwarves is established. Uh, so there are actually historically good relations between the elves of Ir region and Moria, and the dwarves of Moria. So now in 1000, Sauron's done stirring, and he settles in Mordor to, to start drinking his cocktail. He starts building Baradur. He's getting a little more serious. 1200 is when things really start popping off. Sauron appears as Anatar. Okay, he, he appears in a fair form. Uh, he starts visiting the different elvish realms, starts seducing them with his wisdom. Um, you know, he's very With his very powerful. large wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's why they needed an intimacy coordinator. <laughs> 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 so you know he's got this this big wisdom busting through the door at all these uh, elvish realms and uh, but they're they're all loving it because um he was uh originally Sauron was um under the Valar uh, Aeol who was sort of a the big into smithcraft so he was really skilled at building things um, and the elves love to do that, especially Calabrimbor, who's a relative of Fionor. Um, and so he helps them start to create the rings of power. This is the time when the rings of power are forged. Um, the only elves that don't give in to his, uh, seduction is Gilgalad and Elrond. They don't trust him. They're like, who is this weirdly powerful guy who comes out of nowhere um, and that we've never heard of before. Hmm, could it be? <laughs> but, you know, they don't actually say that they suspected Sauron, but they just don't trust him, um, which seems obvious to me as a reader. You know, there aren't a lot of Meyer-powered uh, individuals walking around Middle-earth. Um, you should maybe be a little bit sketched out if one pops up on your doorstep and says, hey, you know, w- want to take a ride in my ice cream truck? But um, apparently Gilgalad and Elrond are the only ones who uh, were a little concerned. <laughs> in 1600... So between 1200 and 1600, he's working with the elves and they're forging the various rings of power. And the elves are the ones who are doing most of the forging, but with his aid and guidance and tutelage. So this is a time when, you know, the nine rings of men are forged and the three rings of the elves and the seven rings of the dwarves. And actually there are more rings. We know that there are, they they make a number of rings beyond that. But in 1600, Sauron forges the one ring in the fires of Mount Doom. Um, Celebrimbor and the elves of Eurigen immediately perceive Sauron's treachery. They take off their rings and hide them. Um, and they actually endeavor to destroy a lot of the rings. Um, Sauron obviously immediately realizes that the elves have betrayed him, or at least he perceives it as a betrayal. And uh, a couple years later, a war erupts between the elves and Sauron. Um, Sauron lays waste to Eurigen, kills Celebrimbor in brutal fashion, basically kicks everyone's butt. The doors of Moria are shut. The dwarves are like, we're not having any of this. Okay, so they shut the doors of Moria. So Sauron doesn't bother with them. Um, and this is a seven-year war. And it's it's brutal. And, and Sauron's winning. I mean, he's absolutely winning. Um, and he captures all of the rings except for the three elvish rings. Okay. Now, in 1700... Just as Sauron is really rubbing it in and, and winning this war, the Numenorians come. Um, I guess Sauron forgot about them, and because the Numenorians hadn't really been doing much Middle Earth, they come to the aid of Gilgalad and they actually defeat Sauron, and Sauron is forced to flee back into the east. Um, but the Numenorians don't really stick around; they go back to Numenor, and for the next 
550 years. Um, Sauron is sort of stewing in the east, but the Numenorians are growing in strength. They're establishing dominion over the coasts of Middle-earth. Um, they're trading with the men there. They're teaching them great things. And, and a lot of ways they're treated as benevolent gods because they're tall and powerful. And in the eyes of the wild men of Middle-earth, um, they are as gods. Um, so as Sauron is tightening his grip over the east, the Numenorians are growing in strength, but there's no real conflict during this time. But it is during this 500-year period when he is ensnaring people with the nine rings of men. So he, we know that three of them are Numenors, Numenorians, so he must have interacted with them at some point and ensnared them, gave, you know, tempted them with the rings, um, and they took those rings, grew in power, and then over time became the ring raids we knew as the Nazgul in the Lord of the Rings. So it's during this 500-year period where there's no conflict, but he's doing some sneaky stuff in the shadows, giving out the rings to the dwarves and men, and this is the time when he's ensnaring them. Uh, in 2251, and for the next 900 years, so in 2251 is when the first Nazgul appears. So this is a, a one of the kings of men that he's ensnared with the ring and who's now become a rave. Um, but for a, you know basically 900, 1,000 years, these raves are starting to be active. They're starting to work their dark magic. Um, and the shadow is not only deepening over Middle-earth, but it's deepening over Numenor. The Numenorians at this time start grumbling about their mortality. They're not happy with this Atlantis that they were given uh, because they feel, hey, why do we have to die when all of our elvish friends get to live forever? And they become really dissatisfied with that. And for this thousand-year period, they slowly start getting more and more pissed off. Um in 3175, this is when a, a real important plot line in the Numenorean story uh, starts. Uh, the King Tar Palantir, uh, who is still faithful, one of the remaining faithful um, uh, on the island of Numenor, he tries to steer Numenor straight, but it is just too late. So when Tar Palantir dies, his daughter becomes the queen. She takes the scepter. However, his nephew, Erpharazon, who is not one of the faithful, he is very mad about having to die. He seizes the scepter by marrying the queen by force against her will. Okay, and we're going to talk about that, but that is obviously a very dark type of storyline that the show could potentially get into. I mean, he marries her by force against her will. We all know what that means. Um, in 3261, so about six years later, is when Arpharazon sails to Middle-earth. And he does this because he starts hearing rumors that Sauron, who has been growing in strength in Middle-earth, has declared himself sort of king of the world. Uh, and Arpharazon says, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I think I'm, I should be a king of the world. So he goes over there um, with his giant fleet, and Sauron says, ah, criminy, and basically goes and surrenders. He doesn't even bother to battle with Arpharazon and his great fleet. He just comes in and surrenders. But actually, this is what Sauron wants, because he hates the Numenorians, and by permitting himself to be captured, he now has an opportunity to go to Numenor and to corrupt the hearts and minds of the Numenorians. And that is exactly what happens. Um, in the next 50 years or so, Sauron quickly uses his cunning wiles to become an advisor to Alpharazon and corrupts most of Numenor. Um, he establishes a cult of Morgoth. There are human sacrifices. Um, the Numenorians are straight tyrants during this time. They, they're taking slaves. Um, it's, it's a very, very dark time. This is the, um, the zenith of their evil fall, to mix metaphors here. Um, the Numenorians are no longer mixing with elves. Um, and Erpharazon has designs to 
sees immortality. Now, there are, during this time, still some remaining faithful who maintain good relations with Gilgalad and the elves. Now, this includes Elendil, and they really, uh, they go to Middle-earth by different paths, so they hang out with the elves, whereas all the king's men of Numenor uh, go to different parts of Middle-earth. So there, there is a small group of faithful uh, led by Elendil, actually Elendil's father. But at this point, own, twisted by his own pride and the deception of Sauron, he builds the greatest armada the world has ever seen and attempts to assail Valinor. Uh, intending to conquer the blessed lands and thereby obtain immortality by force. Of course, this effort is futile. Um, Erfurzon, you know, he touches down, he gets off of his ship, camps out for a day, and the Valar are like, we're not having this. And they actually lay down their governance of the world. And they ask uh, Iluvatar to intervene, Iluvatar being the one god that created the world. They ask him to intervene. And he does. And he changes the world forever. It had it had been flat. He makes it round. He destroys our Farazon's fleet. They're swallowed up uh, in, a, in a great wave. And all of Numenor and its inhabitants are swallowed up by the earth. Uh, a great hole opens up and Numenor falls in, basically. Um, and the only Numenorians that escape are Elendil and his nine ships of the faithful. So that is the end of Numenor, and that is pretty close to the end of the Second Age. Um, but for those who watched the movie, of course, you know there is one last battle. So for the next hundred years, Elendil, who, who did escape Numenor, establishes Gondor and Arnor. Sauron, who was at Numenor at the time it was swallowed up, because he is a Meyer, he can't die. He loses the ability to take fair physical form, but his spirit flees back to Middle-earth. He sets up shop again in uh, Barad-dûr, and he immediately starts rebuilding his strength. Um and about 100 years after the fall of Numenor is when the last alliance of elves and men is formed. There's about 10 years of war culminating in the ultimate defeat of Sauron, which is depicted in the flashback first scene of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and this is the defeat of Sauron where Isildur cuts the ring from Sauron's hand. So that is the entire massive 3,441-year arc of the Second Age. Um, it's a lot of the material. It's, it, a, it's, it's a lot of, I mean, it. they've got a lot of material to work with, and it makes sense that they they there could be about five seasons, because they're going to need five seasons to cover all of this. It's 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 a lot. If, um, and I'm excited to see where they're going to go And we can talk about it. this. If I they think, are in, indeed, in, if they're indeed planning on, on tackling the entire Second Age, they would need, I think, 20 seasons <laughs> to, to do it convincingly. I mean, how, how do you depict the passage of time, 3,441 years? Yeah, I mean, there may be, they may um, adjust but, the timeline is my thought. They may really adjust the timeline and, and shorten some things. And we may see some characters that weren't, didn't necessarily appear in the, in that specific time. That's what I think is going to happen. Right. So we have really, you know, there's a lot of events that go on there, but we really have, I think, four different discrete conflicts. We have the first 1700 years, which is the first rise of Sauron. He forges the rings. He appears as Anatar. Um, then he is discovered and he lays waste to your region and then is defeated by the Numenorians. That's the first conflict. Then 1700 to about 3200, 3260 is the second rise of Sauron. Um, he grows in power, declares himself Lord of the world, uh, essentially, and then Arpharazon comes and boots him out again and actually cap captures him. Um, then 3260 to 3320 is the third sort of conflict where Sauron is actually a captive of Numenor, but he is wreaking havoc from within, and he corrupts the hearts and minds of the Numenorians and convinces Arpharazon to foolishly try and seize the Valar. 
or sees Valinor. Um, and that culminates in the destruction of, Val- of Numenor. And then there's finally the last 120 years or so um, after Numenor has been destroyed. And there's the last alliance of elves and men where the, the remaining faithful Numenorians ally with Gilgalad and defeat Sauron for the final time, at least the final time in the Second Age. There are really four discrete little conflicts here um, that the show the show could take them all on. It could take one of them on. Uh, but I think those are the, sort of the, the high watermarks to look for in uh, the Second Age. Right. And I think um, I'm I'm really excited that they're doing at first I was like, what, how are they doing the second age? There's just not enough material. But actually, as we know now, as I know now, there's a lot of material. And I think fans will get excited to see the rings of power being forged. We could actually see Sauron, um, you know, creating these rings. And I think he makes a very compelling, obviously a very compelling villain. And I'm excited to see him in human form, kind of wreaking havoc and 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 doing all these different things. Um, I, I'm hoping, you know, we see something, see more of uh, the tales of Numenor from, from unfinished tales. For example, the Mariner's Wife. I think that would be really mm-hmm. great to see kind of the background of Numenor and how they, their history and their, um, yeah, I'm, that's a really compelling story. So I'm hoping that they incorporate some of uh, the material from unfinished tales in there, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I hope that they got access to all the Second Age material they could. But even if they do, even that is not very much. I mean, we have basically, uh, you know, a handful of pages in the appendices of Lord of the Rings. We have about, you know, 30, 40 pages in the Silmarillion. And we have some material from the Unfinished Tales. But it's really not much. And it is really just a sketch. It's, It's timelines. It's high points. There is no narrative to speak of. And so all of that is going to be, is going to be created from whole cloth by the showrunners, the directors, the script uh, screenwriters. So I'm I'm really interested to see what narrative they decide to create to to that um, they sort of hang on these different uh, pillars in the timeline that that Tolkien did give us because that's all we got. We got pillars, we got certain events, but we got no narrative. So they're going to have to paint. Uh, a narrative onto this timeline. And I'm really, really excited to see how they do I'm excited too. I'm also nervous because I think so, so much of what I love about Lord of the Rings, the films just comes straight from the book. The, the script, the, the dialogue in those books is so it's beautiful. And I think, I hope that the, the script writers, it all comes down to the script for me. (laughs) If it's a good script, then I can get behind it. You know, I really, special effects, I really could care less. I mean, sure, who doesn't love good special effects? But I think if you go crazy with the special effects and the CGI and, you know, the script sucks, then I'm not going to want to watch it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think what Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh especially deserve tons of credit for is the way that they incorporated Tolkien's original dialogue the original text into their adaptations. They didn't monkey around with it very much. They took the original gems and they polished them in some places, made it fit, um, you know, the, the movie medium, but they did not rewrite the dialogue to make it fit Hollywood or anyone's conception of what a fantasy movie should be. They really took a lot of the original lines. Um, and as you said, we don't have any original lines. We don't have any original dialogue for the second age. Well, and that's, well, that's why I'm hoping they do. There is original dialogue in, 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 for example, the Mariner's wife, you have real 
it's it's more of a play-by-play than you get with sure. like th- with the appendices and things like that. So I am hoping they they draw from that. They at least take inspiration from that. Um, and I yeah, I'm I'm really hoping they just preserve that that original Tolkien feel and style and language, which is what I love about the series in the first place. It's just beautiful. Um, well, so do you think it's time? You know, we we we've laid the groundwork. We set the table. Let's 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 eat this dinner we prepared for ourselves. There's been a synopsis that was dropped days before we were recording this. You know, we were talking about when should we record, when should we start this podcast, and then the synopsis was dropped, and I think we were both like, "All right, it's time to go." <laughs> this is the sign we were waiting for. This is the star in the sky. We need to record this first episode because we're starting to get some leaks about what the show is going to be about. Yes, this is juicy. So I'll read the synopsis for you. This is the official synopsis. Amazon Studios' forthcoming series brings to screens for the very first time the heroic legends of the fabled Second Age of Middle-Earth's history. This epic drama is set thousands of years before the events of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and will take viewers back to an era in which great powers were forged, kingdoms rose to glory and fell to ruin. Unlikely heroes were tested, hope hung by the finest of threads, and the greatest villain that ever flowed from Tolkien's pen threatened to cover all the world in darkness. Beginning in a time of relative peace, the series follows an ensemble cast of characters, both familiar and new, as they confront the long-feared reemergence of evil to Middle-earth. From the darkest depths of the misty mountains to the majestic forests of elf, of the elf capital of Linden, to the breathtaking island kingdom of Numenor, to the furthest reaches of the map, these kingdoms and characters will carve out legacies that live on long after they are gone. Exciting. Ooh, oh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, so, do you want to take this sentence by sentence? That's what I want. Because there's so much. I feel like there's actually so much packed in here. I mean, it, we don't know the narrative yet. We, there's still a lot we don't know. But this really gives us some pretty good clues about what's coming. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, let's break it down. Okay, so first sentence uh, confirms what we already knew, Second Age of Middle-Earth's history. Um, now, the second sentence starts with, This epic drama is set thousands of years before the events of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and will take viewers back to an era in which great powers were forged. Now, I think I think what that obviously telegraphs, the first thing that comes to mind is the forging of the rings. Of the rings, yeah. Right? This I mean, is crucial, yeah. And but, we all want to uh, see that. Do you think we could refer to anything else also. I mean, it has to refer to the rings. It just has to. That would be a cruel joke if, if they weren't actually depicting the forging of the rings. But could it be referring to some other powers being being forged, you know, kingdoms and, and things like that? Well, I mean, it could definitely refer to Numenor being, you know, established and rising to power. They did rise as they were the central power in in the dominion of of men. You know, they were they were very powerful and they had a, a powerful military um, you know, they were even, they had, they were horse lords as well. They, they had great, the, all the wisdom of the Valar and the elves and all that kind of thing. So yeah, who knows? But I think we all want to see the rings of power being forged. We're familiar with it. It, it was our first introduction in the films, you know, three rings for the elven kings and the sky. That's, that's, it's critical to, and it's mass consumed, you know? So I think, I think we all want to see that. So the, the next Passage in the sentence, kingdoms rose to glory and fell to ruin. So obviously this is referring to Numenor at least. 
because Numenor in the Second Age rises to glory and falls to ruin. I'm a little puzzled um, by its use of the plural form of kingdom, kingdoms. Um, I'm not sure what other kingdom they were referring to that fell to ruin. Maybe that was a mistake in draftsmanship. Um, But what do you think? Well, um, that could be referring to the elven kingdoms that were under siege at the time. When So um, when the dark powers were kind of growing in Middle-earth and Sauron was stirring up trouble, I know he, he drove a lot of the elven forces back. Um, and their, their grip on Middle-earth, their influence, their power was greatly diminished um, as a result of Sauron um, rising and sending orcs in and kind of taking down their, their kingdom. So that, that could be what it's referring to. That, and that totally makes sense. I mean, that the, the destruction of Eregion would be, um, you know, it, it was ruined. Eregion was ruined. Um, and so, it, you know, it rose to glory in the Second Age and fell to ruin. So that would ab- absolutely fit with that. And it, the fact that it follows the statement, you know, great powers were forged, kingdoms rose to glory and fell to ruin. You know, Eregion fell as a result of the forging of the rings um, and Sauron's desperate attempt to capture all of them. So I, I like that idea. I think that makes sense. I mean, and if they're showing the rings being forged, they of course have to depict the immediate aftermath of that. Yeah, exactly. So this next one is interesting. Unlikely heroes were tested. I don't think there's, I don't, we can speculate, but I think it would be rampant speculation to try and to assign a specific character or plot line to this unlikely heroes being were tested. What this tells me is that they're going to try and stick to the narrative mode of the Lord of the Rings stories, meaning in the Lord of the Rings, a major theme that runs throughout is that heroes come and are found in the unlikeliest of places. Well, Hobbits not just the Lord of the stories. Rings. That's in his, all of, I would say, all of Tolkien's stories. He loves the underdog and he loves the unlikely hero. So this just makes sense. This is just keeping with, I think, what Tolkien you know, Tolkien's wider canon. Well, and thematically, it, you're absolutely right. I totally agree. It, it fits. Um, and it would be a way for them to make sure that the series fits the tone and the style that we're accustomed to, to some degree. I don't know what character it is going to be. It could be entirely made up. We don't, we have no idea. Right. It could be, they have a lot of, um, they have a lot of room to play here. Which means, and I'm excited about this prospect, that a major point of view character, a major protagonist who is central to the narrative is going to be a total unknown, total creation. And I, I love that because most of the characters that were introduced in the timeline for the second age, I mean, these are the Kings. They're talking about the Kings and the Queens. Um, we're not getting to see uh, the average, uh, you know, Joe, the plumber uh, in Numenor. We don't know what any of the lesser individuals are doing for the most part. Um, but obviously those people are important. They have stories and they could, have an important role to play in the the narrative that is presented in this show. And I'm, I'm glad that they're going to do that, not just stick to, you know, depicting the kings and queens that we already know about. Right. And, you know, I, I'm speculating. So when Numenor, before um, Numenor is, you know, laid waste and falls into the sea, basically, there are those on the island who are faithful to the Valar, faithful to the elves, and who don't want to attack the sacred land, basically. And so those folks, we know some of them escaped to Middle-earth, the ones who were faithful, the ones who distrusted Mel, uh, distrusted Sauron. Um, so, you know, those could very, the faithful could very likely be the heroes that they're talking about. Um, we're not sure. Or, or could be some of the heroes we're talking about. 
that could make a lot of sense. I, I, I really like that idea um, because the faithful, I mean, we know about Elendil, we know about Elendil's father who actually um, sails away from Numenor to ask the Valar for their aid again, um, try, sort of reprising the role of, of Arendil the Mariner. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if um, he was allowed to live. Um, we know that the Valar did not save Numenor. Um, so in that sense, that that effort failed. But uh, Elendil was left behind and asked to be ready. Um, it's sort of a almost a Noah style uh, of tale. You know, he readied the ships. Um, and when the moment came, he knew he had to sail away. And whether it's Elendil or some other, probably some lesser character in, in the family, I, I bet among the faithful, um, occupies that unlikely hero role. Yeah, that's what we're thinking. It could also be... You know, we can find heroes in Middle-earth as well among the elves who are resisting Sauron. I'm sure those will crop up. Um, yeah, we'll see unlikely heroes. We won't see hobbits. Hobbits were not around. And I right. think you maybe mentioned that, but I'll just mention it. Hobbits definitely were not around until the Third Age. Right. No no hobbits. Or at least they don't show up in the records anywhere, I, I suppose. You know, the way that Tolkien creates his legendarium there's a certain amount of unknown. It's possible that they could exist. You know, it wouldn't exactly be in conflict with anything Tolkien conclusively wrote. Tolkien never said they did not exist in the second age. He just, their first, we just don't hear first record of their existence. Yeah. It was in the third age, but I would be shocked and probably a little annoyed if they did try and shoehorn some hobbits into this tale. Right. I, yeah. So we won't, unfortunately, because I love hobbits. I identify very strongly with hobbits. <laughs> As just uh, creatures that love good food and music and all that good stuff. Um, anyway, no hobbits. So, the next line. Where did we leave off? Unlikely heroes were tested. So after that comes hope hung by the finest of threads, which is, I I don't think we can take too much from that. I mean, we can, uh, you know, that's a very generic type of, it does tell us something about the narrative we're going to see, that the good guys are going to be the underdogs, that the protagonists um, are are going to be coming from behind, which actually maybe that does tell us a little bit more because you know the Numenorians are the power of the world, but again the faithful are the good guys on Numenor and they are a small minority. Um, and so hope hung hanging from the finest of threads. You know that could be a reference to Elendil waiting and wondering if his father's journey to Valinor to ask for the Valar's aid is successful. Um, it, or it could refer to, you know, the last alliance of elves and men at the end of the second age, again, is, is you know, hope hanging by the finest of threads. They're they're banding together one last time, getting the band together one last time. One last time, time for good measure. Um, <laughs> so that could refer to any of the conflicts, I think. And the great, this one I find interesting. So right after hope hung by the finest of threads and the greatest villain that ever flowed from Tolkien's pen threatened to cover all the world in darkness. What? Morgoth is going to be in this? Yeah, exactly! Okay, so, as Michael mentioned earlier, Sauron, who we who we recognize from Lord of the Rings, he actually was a just a lieutenant way back when. In the first stage, it was Morgoth Melkor, um, who is a Valar, or a deity, if you will. Um, he is, he's kind of his right, he's Melkor's right-hand man, is Sauron. So Melkor's the ultimate, um, the ultimate bad guy. He was the original bad guy, in fact. Like, if we're comparing this to, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition, he's Satan. He is the, he is, you know, the guy who stepped away initially and created 
the fall. Um, that's how you can conceive of it if you're not familiar with the text. Um, but yeah, so I think it's interesting that they said the greatest um, villain that ever flowed from Tolkien's pen. I, I, I've seen more than one person online go, well, actually, Amazon Morgoth was the greatest <laughs> villain. I know you're talking about Sauron here, but that's not right. And <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. <laughs> Technically, I mean, Morgoth is more powerful. He's the original big baddie. You're absolutely right. But Sauron is the villain that occupies most of the narratives that people are aware. I mean, the Lord of the Rings, uh, he's the villain in the Lord of the Rings. He's the villain all through the Second Age. Um, and I love the Silmarillion. It's, it's a beautiful tale. And Morgoth is the bad guy in that. So I'm not trying to say which narrative or which set of stories is, is more important. But certainly, Sauron is the big baddie in the Lord of the Rings, which is the most widely read narrative of uh, Tol among Tolkien's works. So, yes, it is referring to Sauron. No, I don't think Amazon uh, screwed this one up. You know, uh, greatest is a subjective uh, reference. So it's 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 OK. It's, it's OK. I mean, the purpose of the synopsis as well is to get people hyped you know, for the series, and we are, people are most familiar with Sauron as the bad guy, as you said, so we'll accept it, even though it may not be 100% accurate. So, the next sentence is really telling, I think. Um, it says, beginning in a time of relative peace. That tells us something about where the the series starts, and I think it's got to refer to around 500 of the Second Age, because you know, when we went through the timeline, you know, the first 500 years, Sauron is basically sleeping. He's he's taken a, a cat nap. He's he took an L. He lost. Um, he was sent back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so things have been good. But around 500 and after that, he's stirring again. He's starting, you know, he's getting thirsty. He wants to make that cocktail. He's starting to stir things up. Um, and so I think that is what is referring to, you know, it's time of relative peace. Um as the series follows an ensemble cast of characters, both familiar and new, as they confront the long-feared reemergence of evil to Middle-earth. So I, I think we're, you know, talking about some time in that, probably the end, probably around 1,000, Sauron's been stirring, people are worried he's coming back, um, but it's still relatively early in the Second Age. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we are going to see, you know, different, at this time, we're going to see different um, kings and possibly queens of Numenor. There was a queen, there was one queen... Um, of Numenor Aldarion's uh, daughter. This is again from the Mariner's Wife, which I think gives us a really clear picture of what Numenor was like in the time of peace. This was a really peaceful period. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think we could see, you know, Aldarion uh, rule for a bit, his father before him, and possibly his daughter. Um, and in Middle Earth, you know, we might see the elves doing their thing because they were. They were the powers for a long time in Middle-earth until Sauron kind of uh, diminished their power. And then, as we know, in the Fourth Age, it was men. It was the time of the Age of Men. So, yeah, we could see it. I mean, we could see Galadriel during this time with um, Celeborn. Is it Celeborn? I want to say Celeborn or Celeborn. We'll go with Celeborn. Disclaimer, I don't know how to pronounce any of the names in the legendary. Maybe fans can write us and in the next one we'll do a we'll do a pronunciation fact check. I'm going with Caliborn for now. So we may see Galadriel and Caliborn uh bouncing around Middle Earth and doing their thing um during the peaceful period. Yeah. Oh, that would be that'd be interesting to to see. I mean we I think we know we're gonna see Galadriel, I think 
we pretty much know we're going to see Elrond. These are the familiar faces that they're talking about. And um, boy, I'm excited to see what they're up to during this peaceful period, kind of at the height of their powers. Elrond, not at the height of his powers at that time. He is a, more of a lieutenant to Gilgalad. He's actually relatively young. He was only like, you know, 15 years old or something, I think, at the start. Of, well, that's not right. But he's very young at the start of the, the second age. When the first age ends, he is very, very young. Um, and he's just uh, a lieutenant of, of Gilgalad at that time. But still really cool to see what he's up to with Gilgalad. Yes. The next sentence, I got to tell you, is it was the most exciting of them all for me. From the darkest depths of the misty mountains. Oh, I I love dwarves. Uh, you know, I love the Hobbit. The Hobbit had dwarves and I love dwarves. I've always loved dwarves since then. And we're finally going to get to see them. I mean, that's what this tells me because Moria is in the misty mountains and it is deep. It's a big old deep cave. And so if you're talking about the darkest depths of the misty mountains, you are talking about Moria. Yeah, I think you're right. I and the, the dwarves, you're right. They get so little airtime. Uh, they get they are not featured very prominently in the Lord of the Rings series. So, and they're actually a really interesting race of beings. I mean, they have like this very rich um, written history. Unlike like many of the cultures in Tolkien's Legendarium, only have oral history. The the dwarves we know have a lot of written history, and they're very intelligent. They're also very crafty. Um, they were created by the god of um, the Valar. What is his name? I I will I will mention who they. Thank you. Aeol, <laughs> the god of sort of smithcraft. Smithcraft, exactly. So yeah, that is exciting that we'll get to see a little more dwarf action. Well, and we know during this time that the um, that the dwarves are trading and have a really good relationship with the elves of your region, and there's a lot of collaboration. They actually have a really good relationship. So although. We always conceive of dwarves and elves as being enemies, which they are for much of the world's history. Um, during this period, there is a very productive and positive relationship. And I'm I'm really interested to see that and how they deal with that. Um, if there may be undercurrents of conflict, historical conflict that come up, um, you know, during all the, the face time the dwarves and elves have with each other. Um, or if it is all just, you know, happy times. I, I doubt it. That would be very interesting. Um, but we're going to see a, a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah, and that that the dwar- the relationship between the dwarves and the elves is historically contentious. There were periods yep. where it was peaceful and things were okay and they formed alliances, but overwhelmingly they just don't really like each other. And we've always wanted to see Khazad-dûm at its height. And that's if we get to see Khazad-dûm during this time period, it's going to be... You know, as Gimli was saying, roaring fires, malt beer, meat <laughs> off the bone. <laughs> this is the this is the good times in in Moria. You know, you want to go party in Moria uh, during the Second Age, and I think we might just get to see that. Yeah, that'll be cool, especially to to revisit one of those places that we know and love from mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings. To to get to go back at the height of its glory will be really fun. One place that we're going to see that we haven't seen really is the majestic forests of the elf capital of Linden. Not really uh, a destination that had any relevance um, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, at the end, of course, we see them sailing off from the Grey Havens, which is um, a related area. But, you know, we don't get to see Linden or hear about Linden. So it's certainly not at, at its height. So I have no idea what to expect visually. Um I'm going to have to go back and do some reading to see how Linden plays into um, certain plot lines. Um, 
You know, what do, what do you know about this, this town don't... of Linden? I don't know a whole lot. I will also have to do some research. I think I'm visualizing, um, in my head, I'm visualizing Lothlorien. Although I know that elves, elves are so different in Tolkien's Legendarium, depending on where they live. Like the woodland elves are so different from the elves of Rivendell, are so different from the elves of Lothlorien. So I, I need to specifically research, uh, Linden, but I'm picturing just based off of the fact that um, there was such a rich, beautiful, there were such rich, beautiful depictions of Lothlorien and, uh, Rivendell, and they were very majestic, they were very, um, there was a lot of reverence for these elves, and they were very, um, just, uh, what do I want to say? They, they were very elevated beings, which actually in, in the books is not always, um, is not always how the elves are portrayed, um, so, so we'll have to see. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, we know we're going to see a lot of elves. We know they're going to be prominently featured and perhaps, you know, this will be Galadriel's time to shine. Totally. Totally. Um, well, boy, we have a ton of other discussion topics, things that I want to talk to you about, but what, what do you say? I, I think we got a show here. Um, yeah. I think we're just gonna. I think we're just gonna have to do another show, another uh, recording, pretty soon to cover all these other. Because there's a lot of things I want to ask you, a lot of topics I want to get into. I think we probably just don't have the time today, so we might just have to do another show uh, before we get into watch rewatching the movies. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to finish digging into what we know for the upcoming Prime series. But I hope um, everyone's getting excited about it, and. Uh, I hope you guys listen along as we explore all the different works um, on screen that have to do with Tolkien's Legendarium. And if you want to get in touch with us, where could they get in touch with us, Michael? If you want to write in with questions, comments, concerns, what you want to see for the upcoming series. Yeah, we're going to put our email in the show notes. So check out the show notes. And if uh, you have any questions, you know... uh, we have a million, I'm sure we already have a million listeners. We'll get a lot of mail. We probably won't get to your inquiry, but hey, you never know. I <laughs> just read it on it. <laughs> no, we would be so enthusiastic if, if anybody um, were listening and wanted to write in. You know, right now we're just screaming into the void. So maybe only Melkor is listening, but. Um, or so Iluvatar, to... for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jen, this is, this is awesome. Next week, our next episode, we were planning on watching the 1977 animated version of The Hobbit. I, I think we might just have to do a, another episode where we're we're breaking this down and theory crafting before we get to that. But um, probably in at least two episodes, we will start watching the animated Hobbit, which I'm really excited about because I, don't know if you've I ever am seen so that. excited. I've seen it as a child and not since. Like I, I was probably eight years old, and all I remember is being terrified by Gollum. And also a lot of psychedelic colors. So I'm I'm very excited. Much more excited than I am for the Hobbit films later to come. But yeah, it should be a fun time. Please join us for that. And thank you guys so much for listening. So what do you think, Jen? Is it Grey Haven's time? One last, we, we just faded to black and then we're surprising you with... Uh, <laughs> so if anybody's still listening to this point you know we figure we'll reward you you're probably interested enough to be curious about 
who the hosts of this show are and how we got into Lord of the Rings. So if you made it this far, maybe you want to hear a little bit about us. And, you know, Jen, I want to hear from you. You know, we haven't talked about this. How did you, what's your story about how you discovered Lord of the Rings for the first time as a child? How did you get into it? So in, I I was in sixth grade and I remember really distinctly, I was on a hike with my dad and we were talking about chapter books because I had started getting, you know, more and more into chapter books, reading a lot more extensively. And he said, you know, I think you're ready to read The Hobbit. And the next day he gave me The Hobbit. I could not put it down. And then he and I would just talk about it. We, it was kind of, our, it became our thing. So we would just talk about The Hobbit and he was really excited about it. So I was really excited about it. And from, that was kind of the gateway drug. And then I discovered, oh, well, the films came out um, when I was a teenager. So I was, I think I was 12 when uh, the first, um, The Fellowship of the Ring came out. And I was just, I was so obsessed. And I read the books from there, watched the movies. I mean, a fun time for me in middle school, we would have, you know, Lord of the Rings parties, make Lumbus bread, nerd out, watch them talk about them. That was, that was my middle school experience. So I was very cool. In other words, <laughs> I was in with the cool crowd. Um, and then in college, I tackled the Silmarillion and kind of from there went on a little bit of a, I, I would say I went on a little bit of a Tolkien hiatus and, and have dabbled, you know, in his works here and there, reading, um, The Lost Road, The Book of Lost Tales, things like that. Um, but there were many years between reading uh, the Silmarillion and reading the other works, and so I'm I'm really excited that we're diving back into it, and um, I'm 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 coming at it humbly, knowing that I have so much to learn. This this legendarium is extensive. It is one of I think it's one of the greatest works of all time. Truly, um, it's been so influential in my life, though I can't underscore that enough. I think that it's even I would go so far as to say that this has informed my worldview in terms of um, just Tolkien's universe and some of the themes from uh, The Lord of the Rings in particular and um, the morality that's there, the ethics that are there. Um, Tolkien himself, I think I really identify with a lot of his worldview and things that he espoused in these um, in these books. Um, I, I just really identify with his, you know, with his love of nature, with his love of trees and all things. Um, in nature and a deep skepticism of the industrial age and technology, <laughs> which is ironic because we're using tech. I, the irony is not lost on me, but uh, suffice it to say, I yeah, next time let's record this podcast using, uh, yeah, <laughs> podcast brought to you by modern technology. Um, but I, I just, I love um, these, I love all things Tolkien and I'm really excited to be doing this podcast and um, just learning more about, the series. I'm really excited to learn more. So what about you, Michael? Tell me about, tell me about you, how you came to Lord of the Rings. Well, so I knew, you know, we were going to talk about this. So I kind of had to do a little research into my own beginnings because it had become something sort of, of a personal mythology. You know, I, the way I remembered coming to Lord of the Rings was that, um, and I was sure that I was wrong in remembering it this way, but there was a book 
case in our house, sort of a bookshelf that was jam packed with random books, uh, board games, knickknacks, packs of cards, just like a bunch of stuff. It was kind of like a, you know, a little treasure trove for a kid because you go in there and you start poking around and you find different things. Uh, and the way I remembered it was that I went to this bookcase and I discovered this book, The Hobbit. It was just sitting on the shelf. And I loved to read as a kid, um, so I started reading it. Um, and I had already been reading uh, C.S. Lewis, Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe. Um, I discovered, you know, the whole Chronicles of Narnia because the Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe was also on that bookshelf. So I read that and got into the the, the Chronicles of Narnia that way. Um, read all through through all those books, loved them. So actually, uh, C.S. Lewis um, was the one that I came to first. But then I also discovered The Hobbit on this bookshelf. You know, what a great bookshelf. You know. Tremendous. What a wonderful bookshelf. A-plus bookshelf. Good job, Gail and Peter. Rolling. Yeah. And and I just remembered in my mind's eye that I had discovered it. Like I had discovered buried treasure that no one else in my family knew about. Um, and, you know, I, I started thinking, this has to be wrong. And so I called my mom, actually, before this uh, um, filming this uh, or recording this podcast, because I was like, this had to be wrong. One of them had to have given it to me. My mom must have given me this book. Or my dad must have given me this book. But no, they confirmed neither of them have read The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Wow. Um, it was meant to be. And no. I love that you found The Hobbit first as it's intended. You know, it was your gateway. Totally. Totally. Well, and I didn't even know for quite a while that there was a book after The Hobbit. I thought it was The Hobbit and that that was it. I didn't realize there was Lord of the Rings. Wow. Um, <laughs> until uh, uh, sometime later. Until I came to the Lord of the Rings, and actually in my mind, I was like, "There's, there's more books. No, nothing can be better than the Hobbit." <laughs> I was almost, I almost came to the extra books excited, but skeptical that they could be better yeah. than the like, Hobbit. Why can you possibly course. follow this up with? <laughs> right, and of course, the Lord of the Rings. It, it, you know, I, I love the Hobbit, but it's Lord of the Rings is so much more than the Hobbit, and um, and so no one in my family was really into it. My parents certainly weren't into it. Matthew, my brother, got into it, um, and I'll have to ask him. You know, whether it was also sort of on his own or whether he saw me getting into it. Perhaps we can have him as a guest on the podcast. Sure. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be a good idea. Um, But I was kind of the only kid in in the family that got as passionate about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings as I did Um, until uh, I talked to my older sister, Heidi, and she's much older. So she actually wasn't living, um, you know, she wasn't living with us at, uh, at, at this time when I discovered it. So we weren't living together or anything. Um, But she came to visit, and we sort of discovered that we each loved Lord of the Rings. And it was like another wonderful discovery. And she'd actually read much more of Lord of the Rings. She had she told me about the Silmarillion. So again, I had read Lord of the Rings. I didn't know that the Silmarillion existed. I didn't know that this broader world existed. And she introduced me to the Silmarillion. And I remember sitting, I think it was a Christmas time, and she was sort of telling me the broad strokes of what happened in the Silmarillion. And my mind was just like Whoa. exploding. <laughs> yeah, fireworks were going off. I was just listening in rapt attention to everything she was saying. Um, in early high school, I was reading the Silmarillion and, and Unfinished Tales. And I was just I was just totally all about it. And, and I, I liked hearing what you said about how it informed your worldview, because that is exactly how I felt. I mean, I, I grew up in a very religious household. And so religion certainly informed my worldview. But I would say that the Lord of the Rings, oddly, uh, in, in some ways I could say inform my worldview as much as the religious upbringing because those tales told the story that supports a certain moral worldview as strongly or much more strongly than, than you know, a thousand days in church could. And not, I'm not equating the, the morality of those two things at all, but I'm just saying 
that um, reading those books, it, it was very, very pow- powerful for me. And, and you know, Tolkien celebrates, um, he, do, he does not celebrate power. He does not celebrate anything that we would now, you know, refer to as toxic masculinity, you know, violence, aggression. None of those are celebrated at all. And actually those are always aligned with evil characters. Um, he celebrates empathy. Yeah. And uh, patience and forgiveness, you know, uh, yeah. it, it says so much that Aragorn, you know, at the moment that defines him becoming King Elisar is when he reveals himself as a healer. It's not when he has some big victorious moment on the battlefield. It's when he is a healer. Um, and all the most poignant moments are when characters show stunning levels of forgiveness. Uh, a really wonderful moment in the movies, uh, in the movie adaptation is, you know, Gandalf's great line where um or when frodo says it's a pity bilbo didn't kill him referring to Gollum, it's a pity bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance and gandalf sort of um scolds frodo a little bit and says it was pity that stays bilbo hand and bilbo's hand and it's not our place to, to deal out death and judgment and lines like that just have always stuck with me and really made me the person that i am today or at least yeah. um told me how I wanted to be as a person. Right. That's these these are deeply, deeply philosophical works and um absolutely foundational to not just the genre, but I think um the entire, you know, it I I'm sad to to hear that in some literary circles, you know, fantasy as a genre is still dismissed. Um I think just read Lord of the Rings, just give it, you know, a fair shot and you'll see that, you know, this work stands the test of time. It is important. Um now I think more than ever, arguably. Um, but yeah, that's that's really amazing to hear that how you came upon it. I love that you just actually stumbled upon it, um, like it was meant to be. Right, <laughs> right. That's phenomenal, and uh, we both clearly have like deep deep histories with these stories. So um, yeah, I'm excited to bring other people along for the journey and hopefully connect and hear uh, from other people. And maybe one day we'll be able to attend a a moot which is a meetup of uh, fans of Lord of the Rings and all things Tolkien. So, um, Unless they've canceled them, in which case that effort would be moot. <laughs> He's a dad. <laughs> Coming in hot right. with the dad jokes. We'll, we'll, cut, we'll cut that out. We'll cut it out. <laughs> On the editing room floor. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, Jen. Well, um, this is Aragorn signing off. Watch party. Lord of the Rings on Prime. And this is Jennifer Galadriel the Great. That's not her name. (laughs) The Lady Galadriel signing off, and we will see you next time.